Mommy made me mash my M&M's. Yum, yum. You've never heard that warm up? That's a vocal warm up we used to do in choir in high school. Except you like go up the scale with it. So you like, Mommy made me mash my M&M's. Yum, yum. Mommy made me mash my M&M's. Yum, yum. I can't remember what we... Mommy made me mash my M&M's. Yum, yum. I can't remember what we did. But it was not that. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter 11 of Ship of Magic, Consequences and Reflections. We start off with Althea. I think Althea for the whole chapter? Yeah, I believe you're right. One of the few chapters, maybe the first one, that's only one perspective besides epilogue of... I think the Ronica chapter when Efren's dying is just her. Oh, I thought that switched halfway through. Maybe. Either way. One of the few in in the beginning here that is one perspective. Yes. And a comment before we started recording here said Emma thought this chapter was boring. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess because the last two chapters, I was so like. So many arguments. There's so, yeah. And there was like so much going on. I was like racing to finish the next page. And then this one, I'm kind of like, mm, this feels a lot like legal talk. I'm not. I don't care. <laughs> Speaking of, we do have Althea in the room of the advisor that helped Ronica draw up the legal papers, Kirtle. He was their family's old advisor friend, and he, when she first walked in, he kind of seemed to be expecting it because he got down, you know, scrolls already ready to go and was ready to answer questions that Althea might have right. about the decisions that had been signed away. And uh, there is a provision in there. That's, according to Kirtle, pretty standard stuff that says anyone who disputes this last testament is automatically excluded from benefiting from it. So basically, can't really contest it in court or whatever they do. So everything is pretty much signed over to Kefria. Right. And Althea is really struggling with this knowledge. She still can't get over the idea that her father must have been tricked into this and that she does not want to live on the charity of her sister, that there, that is not something she's willing to do. Um, and so she's going to try to fight it. And Curtil has to tell her that he doesn't believe there was any coercion done. He doesn't think that Ronica tricked Efren into signing this. And yeah. that kind of hurts worse. Althea... <laughs> Kind of sets him up with the the trap question of, well, do you think this was Efren's wish right. to see it this way? And he answers immediately like, no, I don't think he saw this is how it was going to turn out eventually. And he pauses, gathers himself, and he's like, but he was of sound mind and was not coerced when he signed it. Right. And that he was just convinced that this would be a good idea. And that is kind of sad to think about that. Efren really didn't think that any of this would happen. There's no way he foresaw this much strife in the family. But that is how it ended up turning out. And Althea has very few options left to her. She does ask if swearing something before Saw is legally binding. Because when she left the household last, we saw that right before she left... 
Kyle swore on Saw's name that if she could did just you, get... Did you almost forget his name? Yeah. Oh my gosh. He was I, like, out of your mind. <laughs> truly. <laughs> uh, but Kyle swears to Saw that if she can get a ship's ticket, he'll give her the boat to own and with all the debts included, but still has promised on Saw that he'll do it with three witnesses. And, you know, Cartel tries to say, well, it really depends because if you say something in anger at a bar, like, I swear to Saw, I'm going to kill you and you're drunk and angry, that's not legally binding. <laughs> but with witnesses, and this doesn't seem like a drunken fit of rage, this is something that he can do, which does take a little bit of wavering because technically it's not his boat to give away but kefri has ceded all ownership over to him right so but he says as long as althea can get witnesses then she can actually bring it to court because it's going to go in front of the old traders and they like tradition so you'd end up before the traders council but yes i think you'd win they're conservative the old customs count for much with them an oath sworn before saw would have to be legally honored you have witnesses to this, at least two. Althea leaned back in her chair with a sigh. One, perhaps, who would speak up for the truth of what I say. The other two, I no longer know any more what I could expect of my mother and sister. Kirtel shook her, his head. Family disputes such as these are such messy things. I counsel you not to pursue this, Althea. It could only lead to even worse rifts. I do not believe that it could get any worse, she observed grimly before bidding him farewell. A little bit wrong at the end there, but she can count on Wintrow to speak up because he doesn't want to be on the ship either. He wants right. to be a, go back to his priesthood, you know, but she's concerned about what Ronica and Kefria will say. Will they try to cover up and, you know, say, oh, no, Althea is distraught with everything. She right. didn't say this. She just didn't get her way. Or will they say the truth? And help Elthea get it back. Of course, this never actually ends up going before the council, so we don't know how that would turn out. But Right. It is really interesting, though, that there is this, this argument to be had that Althea doesn't feel like she can trust her family. And it's so interesting to see her viewpoint of Wintrow of, oh, he's just a young boy who doesn't want to be with his father or under his father's thumb. And instead of I think Wintrow would tell the truth because that's what Saw wants. <laughs> also what he wants to. Well, true. It does benefit him. But I, I think even if it didn't necessarily benefit him, he would tell the truth under oath just because of who he is as a priest or a priest in training. <laughs> I think he would have to, ex- unless he wanted to throw out all of his promises to Saw out the window. because. Right? He's talking about an oath sworn to Saw. Like, why would Wintrow ever lie about that? True. But yeah, so we have this little bit of tension where things are really bad in Althea's mind. I guess we know Ronica also feels like things are kind of rough. But to Althea, there is nothing worse than what's already happened. And it does make me wonder if they would have to go in front of the council, if this book was different, how that would play out. Like, would Ronica be able to swallow her pride and say yes? Because she now sees that Kyle isn't as great as she thought. Not if it happened in the next month, I don't think. Mm. Because all of the lands are still Kefria's and it would only be the ship. So if Ronica speaks up about it, 
Kyle could still have that financial noose around her neck True. that Ratnika was talking about, right? So her goal was still to secure the future of the family. And if Kyle is still going to have sway over Kefria, unless Kefria makes a complete, you know, 180 and they both oust Kyle, it's not going to happen, I don't think. True. But if it was a few months down the line, Kefria gets a little bit distance from him. Ronica has more secure grasp on you know, what Kefria could do or would do or will do and more secure line on the lands that they do hold. Maybe I could see him kind of sticking together. Fair. Interesting. So while Thea bids Curtil farewell, walks out and is kind of thinking on her whole prospect, her whole situation right now. And she remarks that legally she was dependent entirely on her sister's goodwill and she legally had nothing. But... Well, she specifically says, legally, she did not intend that her reality would have anything to do with that kind of legality. She would not live off of Kefria's charity, especially not if it meant she would have to dance to Kyle's tunes. So she's like, no, screw that. Legally, I have nothing. Fine. I'll build my own stuff. I'll make my own fortunes. I'm going to be similar to the Vestrits who originally founded uh, the house in Bingtown here. Right. And I I actually do think this is a commendable aspect of Althea that she has decided that even though this is the hard way, I'm going to do it that way because it's what I believe in. I think we do give her a lot of grief about being very childish, which I guess in some ways not being prepared and tackling something is somewhat childish, but she knows the reality of what it is that she has to do. She knows how hard it is going to be. And she's deciding that if she can't make it that way, then she deserves to starve because her father gave her all the information she needs to survive. Yep. And I don't know. I think that's really admirable of her. So she commits to doing this plan and trying to confront Kyle before the Traders Council to get Vivacia back. Right. She heads her way down to the dock to talk to Vivacia and... She's remarking on the differences between wearing a dress and her regular sailor's outfits. Everyone seems to ignore her as a lady of Bingtown because she's not a sailor. No one's calling out hello. And she is also dressed a lot nicer than she normally does near the docks. So she looks like a respectable trader's daughter um, because she wore this as a little bit of an apology to her mother in the morning for how she acted the night before. And she didn't really think about it being the only thing she would have to her name right now. She had chosen the simple dark dress and laced sandals that morning as a partial apology to her mother for how badly she had behaved the night before. She had little expected that it would become her sole fortune as she set off into her in, on her own into the world. And she's walking down the docks and she's just kind of... With that newfound sense of confidence and like, I'm going to do this, it slowly starts getting stripped away. She's just thinking more and more about doubts, things that can go wrong, about how she's even going to get on a ship. Who would let a woman be a part of a crew? I mean, they're not rare, she says, but they're not common either. And you see them come from like six Dachi ships often, but Bingtown, it's not as common. Right. She says that the three ship sailor people... They have more women, but that's because they're fishermen and those families, it's like a full family business. Everybody's on board, but really 
the Bingtown people, who she's considering the OGs, <laughs> the original Bingtown people, are the ones who don't really have very many women on board. And she talks about how it's going to be really hard for her if she does go down this path because as a woman, she has to prove herself as tough, if not tougher than her male counterparts, that yeah. there's already that stacked against her. Yeah, and that's a you know real thing too, yeah. getting pulled from, from the <laughs> from world. real, real yeah. life. <laughs> that it's not good enough to be good at something in a male-dominated field. You have to... Excel. Excel. And that's really hard. And she's never really had to test how good she is. So I wonder if part of this thinking is a little bit of self-doubt of, oh, I've never been tested. I don't know, though, because she seems to think that her that she is a real sailor. Yes, yeah. I don't I, think that thought leaves her ever until she's on the whaling ship. But I think she, deep, deep, deep down where she doesn't even think about it, maybe there's right. self-doubt there. But it's so much covered up by, like, Kyle said so and he's an idiot, so anything he says is wrong, so I'm the best sailor. Right. I think that's mainly her attitude toward it right now. Right. But she does have the obstacle of being a woman, and right now all she has to her name is a dress, which yep. will not be helpful on board. She cannot wear that dress on board. Right. And so she is kind of struggling thinking about what the next steps even look like. But she eventually gets to Vivacia alongside her, sees her kind of closed eyes and almost sunning, and reaches out and greets her. And Vivacia of course, greets her back because she knows Althea. And with Althea touching the wood, the hull of the ship, she can tell that, quote, already her ship had a much greater sense of self. She could speak to Althea and still keep awareness of cargo as it was shifted in her holds. And, Althea realized with a pang, she was focusing much of her awareness on Wintrow. The boy was in the chain locker, coiling and stowing lines. The heat of the tiny enclosed room was oppressive, while the sh thick ship's smell all around him made him nauseated. The distress he felt had spread through the ship as a tension in the planking and a stiffness to the spars. Here, tied to the dock, that was not so bad, but out in the open sea a ship had to be able to give with the pressures of the water and wind. So that little paragraph tells us a lot about the relationship between Vivacia and Althea already. Right. I mean, Althea's not lying when she says she has a bond that no one else can really understand at this point. Her father probably could, but no one else, because no one else has really sh sailed on uh, Vivacia before. Right. And they haven't spent the time. So just a touch immediately gives the same kind of sense that Fitz has with uh, Night Eyes almost. Yeah. And that's... To Wintrow, she can tell that Wintrow is feeling uncomfortable and like the ship smell is making him queasy, making him queasy and all that stuff just by touching Vivacia, who has another link, a burgeoning link with Wintrow. Right. And I think what's really interesting about this chapter is that it kind of shows that Althea isn't wrong. There is a bond between her and Vivacia, but there is also a bond between Vivacia and Wintrow. And I like that it doesn't really, it's not a co competing thing. Vivacia never makes this one or the other. She loves them both and she is connected to both. But right now Wintrow's the one on her ship, not Althea. And also Wintrow doesn't want to be there. So there's a lot more attention that has to be put on that. And Althea it's, is taking on the role of being a very mature person trying to ease Vivacia into this and kind of assuage her fears 
and help her through because Wintrow doesn't want to be there and Vivacia can sense it. And Althea doesn't lie to her. She says, I'm not, there's no use lying. Of course, Wintrow doesn't want to be there, but he's going to be okay. You know, the task that he's doing is really bothersome, but he's new. He'll learn. It will get better. And sure, he doesn't want to be there now, but it's not, he doesn't hate you. Yeah. No one can hate you. No, no one can hate you. He just hates the situation he's in and you can't hold that against him. She also adds, you can be his strength, you know, let him know how much you value him and what a comfort it is to you that he is aboard as you once did for me. Try as she might, she could not keep her voice from breaking on the last words. But I am a ship, not your child, Vivacia replied to Althea's unvoiced thought rather than her words. You are not giving up a little child with no knowledge of the world. I know in many ways I am naive still, but I have a wealth of memories and information to draw on. I just need to put them in some sort of order and see how they relate to who I am now. I know you, Althea. I know you did not abandon me by choice, but you also know me. And you must understand how deeply it hurts me when Wintro is forced to be aboard me, forced to be my companion and heart's friend when he wishes he were elsewhere. We are drawn to one another, Wintro and I, but his anger at the situation makes him resist that bond, and it makes me ashamed that I so often reach toward him. And Althea can sense the division in Vivacia's mind, how she needs Wintro for companionship but doesn't want to push him away. Because he's resenting that already. Right. And it makes her lonely. The vivacia is lonely to be in this spot where she has to suck it up kind of and just leave Wintrow alone so that he can have space and just hope that that means eventually he'll come to her. But she's also, as much as she's kind of not a child with three fully grown lifetimes in her, she is still a child. And so she does need that company. I mean, I think even adults need company, but (laughs) especially when you're a fledgling to life, it's good to have companionship. And that's not something Wintrow is really willing to give. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, she gets confronted by Torg just then, kind of interrupts their conversation. And Torg is like, hey, you get away from her. You're not supposed to be here. Captain's orders. (laughs) my favorite this is my favorite interaction in the book so far i think because althea says this sir is a public dock she pointed out calmly well this ain't a public ship so shove off (laughs) (laughs) it's just so dumb but (laughs) it's very funny and she does say that as little as two months ago she would have blown up back at torg and have like a shouting match but right Having time of introspection with Vivacia and her father's death and everything like that kind of calms her down and says that those events have changed her. It was not that she was a better-tempered person, she decided detachedly. It was that her anger had learned a terrible patience. What good was wasting words on a petty and tyrannical second mate? He was a little yapping dog. She was a tigress. One did not waste snarls on such a creature. One waited until one could snap his spine with a single blow. He had sealed his fate with his mistreatment of Wintrow. His rudeness to Althea would be redeemed at the same time. And with a wave of giddiness, Althea realized that while her hand rested on the planking, her thoughts were Vivacia's and Vivacia's were hers. She pulls free and says, no, Vivacia, 
Do not let my anger become your own, and leave vengeance to me. Do not soil yourself with it. You are too big, too beautiful. It is unworthy of you. Before we continue that conversation, we can kind of see the transition that catches you off guard because it's pretty natural. Yeah. But happens a lot in the Farseer trilogy. Yes. It's very reminiscent of, you know, someone taking over the emotions and kind of speaking through and it just shifts perspectives a bit. Right. Which Hop does often, but not often enough where it's like, oh, it's this again. It's, right. It's very masterfully and subtly done. So her anger at Torg becomes Vivacious and Vivacious reflecting the, oh, he was very mean to Intro and now he's really rude to Althea. He's going to get revenge. Right. And I think it's really interesting because we do see this temper of Vivacious starting to show mm-hmm. that she is kind of someone who is holding grudges and not this innocent little baby that Althea thinks she is. She is more, I guess, grown, but also a little bit more devious than Althea is expecting. Yeah. Althea even remarks in the following conversation to that or tries to calm her down a bit. Vivacious like, I don't want him on my board on board then if he's this little vermin. Right. And Althea's like, no, it's it's fine. We'll deal with things as they come. You don't need to do anything. There's nothing you can do right now. Right. Well, I think something that might be a misunderstanding on Althea's part, I suppose it could be on my part, <laughs> um, but a misunderstanding on Althea's part is that this was her emotion she was giving to, uh, to Vivacia. I don't think, I think they share the same feelings. I think so too. But I think this is just as much Vivacia as it is Althea. I think so too, but I feel like Vivacious, since Vivacious is so new, this is just my headcanon, that Vivacious feeling was a little bit softer, more muted. And then when Althea, you know, has her hand on there and is feeling these very hot emotions because she's saying her anger hasn't gone away. It's gotten deeper. It's just, she's patient now. So when she feels that anger, it's a lot of anger, especially pent up at probably all the situations that kindles even more Vivacious and the kind of says to Vivacia, oh, this feeling is right. That's fair. Yeah. So it's similar to how Hob describes Night Eyes and Fitz calling out to one another when they were both just super angry. They were just bouncing back and forth and making each other angrier when they right. first met. I feel like it's kind of like that, where Althea came in very hot and Vivacia's like, oh yeah, I am <laughs> mad too. Okay, yeah, actually I like that depiction a little bit better, but okay. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, you know, it's right, not just yeah. Althea's anger, but no, yeah, but there's definitely, it. She, yes. she doesn't help. No, I guess I, I should say that I like the imagery that you've given me. So Althea says there's nothing really can really do. She assured the ship, but even as she spoke, she heard a muffled cry and then a heavy thud from within vivacious hold. Someone cursed fluently on the deck, followed by cries for Torque. A young sailor's voice floated up clearly. The hoist tackle's pulled free of the beam, sir. I'd swear it was set sound enough when we started work. Torg's head disappeared, and Althea heard the sound of his feet running across the deck. The unloading was ground to a halt, and Vivacia says, That should keep him busy for a time, Vivacia observed sweetly. And Althea's kind of concerned about this. She's like, well, I I do have to leave, actually. Because she doesn't want to encourage this... Or even think that Vivacia would undo some of the knots and maliciously work against the crew already. 
Right. No, it is really interesting to have this whole conundrum Althea is facing. She is realizing that she doesn't want to know if that was something Vivacia did on purpose, that if she rejoins Vivacia now, she will have a definite answer and it would be way harder to live with the knowledge that that Vivacia is doing something out of rage yeah. than it would be to just say, oh, maybe it could be. Exactly. And so she needs to get away from that feeling. And I feel really bad for her. I mean, clearly she wants to be with Vivacia and we don't know, maybe Vivacia would do better with Althea there, but kind of right now feels like Althea is just kind of enhancing the anger and <laughs> making things a little bit worse, even if she's trying to help. <laughs> I think she would do better than what actually ends up happening yeah, to her. Fair, <laughs> true. That's good. You know what? You're right on that, but I don't know. Yeah. There's a part where she kind of thinks of that too, a little bit later in here, but mm-hmm. right now they're saying their goodbyes and Basically saying, I can't believe I'm going to sail off without you. And Althea is like, I can't, you know, it's going to be hard to stand on the docks watching you leave. But at least you'll have Wintro. And Vivacia instantly turns back into the young, distressed, very distressed person and says, who hates being with me? Vivacia, you know I can't stay here, but I will be back. Know that I am working on a way to be with you. It will take me some time, but I will be with you again. Until then, behave yourself. I suppose, Vivacia sighed. Good. I will see you again soon. And then she turns and hastens away. And with Althea turning away, she's having all these thoughts about like, I don't want to know if Vivacia did it. And I don't want Vivacia to know my feelings on her of how jealous I am of Wintro, of maybe me suspecting that Vivacia did this, you know, a bunch of different things. Right. She wanted to be strong for Vivacia. And she's hoping and praying to Sof fervently that the ship would not attempt to right things on her own, to right. take justice into her own hands and is trying to portray the, like, the confident, I will get you back. It'll just take a little bit of time. Behave until then. Don't worry about it. Right. And I think this is so interesting because I don't know if Althea has ever had to play this role before. I don't know if she's ever been put in a position where she needs to be the caretaker and so this is really clearly foreign to her. She is doing what she thinks a caretaker is supposed to do. She's being calm. She's being rational and promoting something that would be good for them, good for the ship, even if it's not good for her, like kindling that uh, that bond with Wintrow. Mm-hmm. But she's still struggling. She's still just a teen herself and right. has to now live with this horrible jealousy of Wintro and Wintro doesn't even appreciate it. So that probably makes it a little bit harder. Right. Yeah. She's reflecting on Vivacious personality now as she's walking away. She had dreamed of a ship with all the good qualities of a proud and beautiful woman. She had not paused to think that Vivacious had inherited not just her father's experience, but that of her grandfather and great grandma as well to say nothing of what Althea herself had added. She feared now that the ship would be just as hammer-headed as any other vestrate, just as slow to forgive, just as intent on having her own way. If I were aboard, I could guide her, as my father guided me through my stubborn times. Wintrell will not have the vaguest idea of how to deal with her. A tiny black thought pushed itself into her mind. If she kills Kyle, he will have brought it on himself. A chill of disgust raced through her that she could even harbor such a thought. She stooped hastily to wrap her knuckles against the wood of the dock, 
to prove her fate against the vivacia ever doing anything so horrible. But as she straightened up, she felt eyes on her. She lifted her gaze to find Amor standing and staring at her. So yeah, Althea is kind of fully realizing there's a person there that I don't know, and it's not the person that I that was asleep that I shared memories with, right? There's an actual personality. There's mm-hmm. other people than just my father in there. There's three generations of Vestrits. It's going to be, she's going to be really stubborn and want her way and be very slow to forgive and be very stubborn and like Althea was when she was a kid. And Althea is, this is the, the, the part where I think she could help a little bit, even if she's very inexperienced. I think right. she could help Vivacia a little bit more than Wintro or definitely Kyle could do. Because Kyle's idea of beating out stubbornness is beating out stubbornness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do think Althea would have had a little bit better of a shot. I don't know, though, because if we say that, like, Wintro just didn't come into the story and she's on there with Kyle, too, I don't know if it would be right. a conducive environment no, to, no. to that, especially if he's going to be trafficking in slave trade. I, I think there's just no helping someone live through that <laughs> but yeah we have Althea thinking of her father of saying you know like my father gave me these tools and I would use them to help and you know I don't think she's trying to look down on Wintrow here by saying he has no idea what he's what he's getting himself into I think that's just a fair thing to say about he's a 13, 13 <laughs> yeah 13 year old like 13 year olds don't know how to handle like raising a child (laughs) i mean i guess not that a 19 year old is going to be that much better but at least she is a woman and (laughs) experienced going through puberty and like the moody years or whatever i guess boys also get moody during puberty but she's had a little bit more of life to experience than a 13 year old (laughs) so we get amber now staring at althea althea knocking on wood yes (laughs) that she doesn't accidentally kill kyle by saying that she hopes he dies which also a little dark i think it's more she hopes that vivacia doesn't kill kyle because a ship shouldn't do that fair (laughs) Fair. (laughs) little distinction there i don't think she cares that much of kyle (laughs) anyways uh she's describing amber here and describes amber with a robe that disguises all of the lines of her body mentions gloves again and Althea specifically mentions it would be to hide the calluses of a, a skilled artist in the guise of a gentlewoman or something like that. So all these little hints are still there. But uh, she's just staring at Althea. I think the most fool thing about Amber is the way that she is described in this moment of she stood still as if unaffected by all of it as she were included enclosed by a glass bubble. For a second, her tawny eyes locked with Althea's, and Althea's mouth went dry. There was something otherworldly about her. All around her, folk came and went on their business, but where she stood, there was stillness and focus. And I think that's really interesting. That the Just this feeling of someone who is different to the world, who is a focus beacon. This feels very remnant of how Fitz first describes the fool. And just, I think 
I don't not exactly, obviously, but just this idea that beloved is different. Yeah. Beloved is a white. So just the presence alone, I'm sure would feel weird. And the fact that she starts, her mouth goes dry whenever she meets Amber's eyes makes me think of the fact that people other than Fitz can't really look at fool in the eye. Yeah. It like freaks them out too much. <laughs> and Elvia can't really rip her eyes away. She describes the beautiful necklace of wood beads that she has that, uh, um, Amber has her eyes dart up to Amber's face, then realizing she's staring. And once more, their eyes met. Amber is not smiling, but f- turns her head side to side to basically show, um, <laughs> to, to tell, Althea that she knows she was staring and like here look at the rest of me as well (laughs) instead Althea noticed only her mismatched earrings she wore several in each ear but the ones that drew Althea's attention were the twisted serpent of gleaming wood in her left ear and the shining dragon in her right each was as long as a man's thumb and so cunningly carved she almost expected them to twitch with life Althea suddenly realized how long she'd been staring. Unwillingly, she met Amber's gaze again. The woman smiled questioningly at her. When Althea kept her own features perfectly still, the woman's smile faded to a look of disdain. That expression did not change as she set a slender-fingered hand to her flat belly. As if those gloved fingers had touched her own midsection, Althea felt a chill of dread spread through her. She glanced once more at Amber's face. It now looked set and purposeful. She stared at Althea like an archer fixing his eye on his target. In all the hurrying, busy folk, they were abruptly alone, eyes locked, impervious to the crowd. With an effort as physical as pulling away from a grasping hand, Althea turned and fled up the docks, back towards the Bingtown market. This is such a weird section. Amber is a strange person. Clearly, to Bingtown standards, she really stands out. But we also see this weird sense of Althea really being drawn to Amber. And it makes me wonder if this is a catalyst thing where maybe she feels some draw because they will be working together to change fate, if that's part of it, or if that's just nothing. It's just a weird feeling she gets looking at Amber we know that the fool, when he was in Buckkeep, gave people unease. So it's not that weird to think that Amber would do the same, even though she's a few steps removed from fool. Yeah. I don't know. And then there's all the little micro expressions that Amber is described as having as well. Right. And it, it feels to me that I'm thinking back on this. It, it feels like she's kind of... She's challenging Althea right now and seeing what kind of person she is. Right. So Amber sees her staring smiles, kind of turns a little bit. Althea's staring again. Amber smiles when they lock eyes and Althea keeps her face still. So she's used to people staring, right? She's used to being like othered. Right. Mm-hmm. But how does Althea react to that? Althea keeps her face still. So then fools, Fool. Amber's expression switches to disdain, which I can only read as like, okay, I have to work with this person, but they think I'm a freak. I was wondering more if the disdain was coming from a place of 
I don't know how to explain it. Like with the history we know the fool has of being ridiculed and bullied. I'm wondering if somebody's staring like that, which would be unsettling anyway. Like if yeah. I was just minding my own business and some woman from like a few feet away is just staring at me for a solid few minutes, <laughs> looking far, at every inch of me. How far do you think they're standing apart? Okay. In my mind, they're like they're on like different ends of the dock. Yeah, yeah. I, like so I guess five away. feet is like too close, but like, but then she says like she could tell the earrings are super well done. Like, yeah, so it can't, it can't be that far, but like... It's just funny. <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm just like, that would be weird. If somebody was staring at me, even if I was dressed weird, I'd be like, okay, who's the real freak here? Like, <laughs> you're staring too much. But I wonder if there's that worry that, I guess kind of like you said that like, oh, great, they think she thinks I'm a freak, but like even more so just, oh, is she trying to be mean? Is this like some weird taunt? Yeah. I don't know. It's just... That, that I think it feels right, but it also feels too surface as well. And I just don't know why. It just doesn't fully click with me either, even though I offered up the explanation for it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't fully click. And then there's the weird, like, hand touches the uh, midsection and Althea feels a chill. I don't know. I, at first, I thought that could reference the Wizardwood charm that Althea has. Right. That Althea, again, ha- or uh, Amber, again, has disdain for Wizardwood. Mm-hmm. Or using wizard wood like that, but I don't know how she would know, right? So I, the whole thing is just very odd. It does set up Amber as a very bizarre character, right? Because we're mm-hmm. in Althea's head, we've seen Althea react emotionally to things, and then all of a sudden we have this weird person just kind of sitting and staring at you, <laughs> right? That is described in a odd way. I do wonder if the like <laughs> the movement to the stomach was more of like a adjusting of the shirt. And Althea is just like so freaked out by Amber <laughs> that it's like, Oh my God, she's doing some weird spell. I don't know. I be. feel a chill. <laughs> or maybe I was also thinking that potentially this is something driven by the prophet in Amber. I, I think to the final trilogy, the final Fitz trilogy where we see from B's point of view that sometimes she is just drawn to doing something. It just right. feels like she has to be somewhere and do something a certain way. And then she feels the relief of, yes, this is right. This is following the path. And yeah. so I wonder if something in this is similar and that Amber felt like they needed to act this way. They needed to put their hand on their stomach in that way. And that helps create the right rhythm that it makes. Yeah. Who knows? It could be something like that. Yeah. So it just feels so weird that it fits into something of some kind of weird explanation to me, but it also could be nothing. (laughs) Well, Thea's freaked out by it because she breaks eye contact and turns and. And runs. Pretty much runs away, looks back. Amber's not following her, but she's out of breath, shaky, feels weak. And she's kind of ridiculing herself for feeling that way. Silly, ridiculous. All the woman had done was look at her. Where was the threat in that? She'd never before been prone to such flights of fancy. Likely it was the stress of the last two two days. She also thinks like, oh, I haven't eaten a decent meal in a long time either, so... 
it's probably just that and then goes to find food. Right. Yeah, she's she's also shaken up by that. So goes to eat, which same. Honestly, (laughs) that's a great way to clear your mind. (laughs) So she goes to eat a decent meal and orders smoked fish and melon and wine. Like, I mean, listen, the melon and wine thing I get, I'm not a big fish fan. I get it. But like like sushi. We've already talked about this. I'm like a meat and potatoes kind of person. (laughs) Beer could be like top tier chef for me. You're from Wisconsin. (laughs) There's Friday fish fries. Yeah, but that's not like smoked fish. I don't know. (laughs) Also, with fish fries, there's like coleslaw, there's bread, there's... Also, like a baked potato sometimes. You don't know that there's not other stuff with the fish that's not mentioned. She literally says it's melon and fr- uh, smoked fish and describes the taste of everything she eats and that's all that there is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, touche. <laughs> it is kind of weird that melon is her side, but melon is really good. Melon so is good. Yeah, I don't, you know. It's just a weird pairing to me personally. I wonder what kind of fish it is. Do you a think, okay, fish. this is like so lame. Do you think Robin Hobb, when she was writing this, was like, mm, a nice smoked trout? Or like, do you think she's just like, mm, smoked fish sounds right? <laughs> like, do you think she thought about mm. that detail and just didn't put it? Or She probably thought about the detail, but probably just like her own preferences. Doesn't really need to include it. Because she lives in Washington and has lived in Alaska before. So she's definitely had fish a lot, I would guess. Right. <laughs> or seafood of some sort. So Fair enough. I don't know. Just random things I think about when reading this book is like, I wonder if I'm thinking too hard on something that Robin Hobb herself is really, really just was like, okay, here's a small detail. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe she doesn't have anything. Cause I remember in the, I remember in the Farseer trilogy, she mentions a description of fish, but never calls the fish a name. And we thought like, Oh, maybe it's a rainbow trout or maybe it's a whatever. So I feel like, Either one, she doesn't want to come up with weird names for fantasy fish. Two, she doesn't want to insert real life fish into her world for feeling out of place. Fair. Three, it really doesn't matter to anything in the story. It matters to me. So Robin Hobb, if you're listening, (laughs) please email in. What fish were you thinking of? If we go to a con and... We uh, and Robin Hobb has a QA. I hope you ask that. So, in Ship of Magic, chapter 11, <laughs> Althea is really torn by a decision and she goes to eat. She orders smoked fish and melon. What kind of melon, and more importantly, what kind of fish was she eating? <laughs> I need to know because it will ruin my immersive experience if I don't. Like, I <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that's what Althea eats. Um, as little detail as we know, that is what she has. And She's really starting to think about her situation more. Yeah. Thinking about the things that she owns and what if she could go back to gather some things from her room at the Vestret household. And she's ultimately decides, no, I don't know what Kyle would do. I don't want to be seen as if I'm running with my tail between my legs going back there for anything. I've made a decision. I have to stick with it. She does specifically think that Kyle might try to lock her up for a week if she doesn't, which is spot on. Yep. Um, but she also mentions that at the beginning of the day, out of habit, she put all of the money that she had in her room into her pockets. So she isn't cashless. She does have money on her person, but she doesn't really want to use that on this meal. It's she only has so much. And she didn't really think about it before she came here and started ordering food or whatever. Right. She just went somewhere she knew. She 
uses her signet ring to send the bill to her house, basically, and says, oh, well, that's the last time I'm probably going to be able to get away with doing that. So kind of wish I had thought of it before, so I ordered a better food, but <laughs> it's fine. The melon was crisp and sweet, the fish most moistly smoked, and the wine was, well, drinkable. She'd had worse before and would no doubt have worse again. She just had to persevere and things would get better with time. Which I think is a really funny line to come after. The food was fine. <laughs> but honestly, I don't know. Food critic Althea, I'd listen to her <laughs> ratings. So she's finishing up her wine. She's finishing up her meal. And the second wave of grief hits her. The first part of it where she's like, oh, my God, my father is dead. What happens now? And there's a scramble, you know, there's how are things are going to fall into place? What's going to go on? And this wave wave, the new idea that just comes to her is he's not going to come back. Right. He's, he's still dead. He's still going to be dead. Even if things kind of pan out, whatever, he's not going to come in and congratulate me. He's not going to come in and fix things if they go wrong. You know, right. he's gone. This is a new normal that she has to deal with. Right. And she says that even if everything else gets better, that part of her life never will. And it is such a sad, poignant thing. And it is kind of just dropped in the middle of nowhere. Like I think grief kind of does happen to everyone in real life that it's just that moment of, oh, this isn't, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and this will be different. This yeah. is just how it is now. And learning to get through that, to get over that hump of, oh, yeah. This isn't just dad is sick and I can't talk to him right now. He just isn't here. And with, with that deep loss in her head, she's like, well, no one else can try to fix this except for me. She doubted Kefria's ability to manage the family fortunes. Kefria and her mother might have handled things well enough, but Kyle was going to be stirring the pot too, leaving herself entirely out of the picture. How bad could things get for the Vestrits? They could lose everything, even Vivacia. She goes on to re recall a memory that she has that, yeah, a family losing their live ship has never happened before, but it got very, very close for one family and kind of thinks on them. They got into a huge amount of debt, and even the creditors had pretty much said, like, hey, we're going to buy this ship. But the last voyage, the last minute, the son was able to pull out a huge profit and right. basically save it for the family. Yeah. And this is the devouch, devouch, devochette. Devoche. Devoche. Yeah. The Devoche family. And they had almost sold their son, the one who got the profitable run to servitude on the boat for the rest of his life as part of the way of getting out of this. So... That was really the closest thing yeah. that anyone has seen to a live ship almost being lost. And Althea says somehow she can't see Kyle in that role as the hero that makes a giant profit and saves the ship. Right. More likely he would surrender both ship and son to his creditors and tell Wintrow it was his fault. Which it sounds <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, honestly, me. everything I know about Kyle, yeah. <laughs> so she forced her mind back to the present issue then. What's going on with Vivacia? 
The ship was newly quickened, and live ship lore claimed that her personality would develop over the next few weeks. All agreed there was no predicting what temperament a ship might have. A ship might be markedly like its owners, or amazingly different. Elthea had glimpsed a ruthlessness in Vivacia that chilled her. In the weeks to come, would that trait become more marked? Or would the ship suddenly evince her father's sense of justice and fair play? She thinks of Kendry, a, a notably willful ship that loves sailing in warm weather with spice and hates being sailed in cold weather. Yeah. And it will well, be like, like a lead ship. <laughs> yes. Basically drags the whole ship slower than it needs to if it has to go to the six duchies. But also like pretty much sails himself as he's going to Jamalia. Yes. With spice in the hold. <laughs> yeah. He, he's very willful, which is kind of fun to think about. Just the personalities of the ships. Yeah. So... In all in all, it's an example, yes, willful, but it's not always bad. And then she makes the, or has the thought, unless the ship goes mad. And then her thoughts move to Paragon. The greed of the owners had created a mad live ship and brought death and destruction on their family line. The Paragon had been but one lifeline that Udo Ludluck assumed command. All said, Udo's father, Paul Wick, had been a fine trader and a great captain. Of Udo, the kindest thing that could be said was that he was shrewd and cunning. And willing to gamble. Yeah. So we were wrong about this, actually. In our last time we were talking about Paragon, we said two lives quickened him. That is incorrect. Um, He had one lifetime before Udo came on board. And with Udo's final, final... Final trip. It was with his son Kerr as well. Yes. With a storm or whatever happened, probably a storm. Yeah. Would be my guess because Udo was greedy and liked to over <laughs> overload Paragon. Yes. And they capsized, they died. He brought the remains back because they were tangled in the nets. But Paragon had quickened from the death of Udo and his son on board, and that's three lives total. Right. But uh, before we get quite to that point, I have a couple things highlighted in this next section. Just about there were rumors that the unquickened ship was difficult to handle. And there's just a couple things of like. Not many people wanted to be on Paragon and most attributed that to Udo because he was harsh and he overloaded everything. Right. So it could be that. But I think it's also the Warring Dragons that Paragon is difficult to sail. Right. Well, it's interesting because this difficulty is before he's even awakened, that there's a feeling of unease on his deck even before he can speak, before the bad things, quote unquote, have already happened. So I think you're right. I think this could be due to the fact that there are two dragons kind of warring. But it is a really interesting thing to think about of how much of a live ship before they're quickened is still around like it was what Althea was feeling at the beginning of this book before Vivacia is quickened Mm -hmm. is that Vivacia or is that the dragon is there a difference yeah Yeah. (laughs) I don't know but this story is incredibly sad how how Paragon is quickened here Setter the uh the wife of Uto is kind of waiting for six months before Paragon comes back, kind of floating with his hull. He's upside down, too. So he mm-hmm. has been capsized, which means that his first coming into light or life, I suppose, 
was underwater. Yeah. And we know that live ships feel pain. I don't know if they need to breathe air. I don't think so. But because he tries to kill himself by drowning himself and it doesn't work. Oh, it's fair. I was going to say that would be pretty (laughs) painful to like have to live through drowning every day for six months. But but his masts are sheared away. He's upside down. He gets hauled in and tangled in the cargo net were the fish eaten remains of Uto Ludluck and his son Kerr. The Paragon had brought them home. But perhaps most horrible of all was that the ship had quickened. The deaths of Uto and Kerr had finished out the count of three lives ended aboard him. As the water slipped away to the bear the figurehead, the bearded countenance of the fiercely carved warrior cried out aloud in a boy's voice, Mother! Mother, I've come home! Sutter Ludluck had shrieked and then fainted. She was borne away home and refused ever after to visit the seawall in the harbor where the righted paragon was eventually docked. The bereft and frightened ship was inconsolable, sobbing and calling for days. At first, folk were sympathetic and made efforts to comfort him. The Kendry was tied up near him for close to a week to see if the older ship could not soothe him. Instead, the Kendry became agitated and difficult and eventually had to be moved. And Paragon wept on. There was something infinitely terrible in that fierce bearded warrior with the muscled arms and hairy chest who sobbed like a frightened child and begged his for his mother. From sympathy, folk's heart turned to fear, and finally a sort of anger. It was then the Paragon earned a new name for himself, the Pariah, the Outcast. No ship's crew wanted to be tied up alongside him. Bad luck, sailors nodded to one another and left him to himself. And he grew silent, with occasional outbursts of savage cursing and wailing. Just when you think Paragon's life couldn't be worse... It's it just is. been tragedy after tragedy in his whole time. <laughs> it's like literally the worst luck imaginable. I honestly rivaling Fitz's himself. I think worse than Fitz's, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're sure, just saying something. Yeah, Fitz's mom abandoned him, but not necessarily willingly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, my gosh, it's just so hard to think about. We have this new ship who has just come into the harbor, had a horrible experience of the death that made him come to life. And his mother leaves because of course she's also heartbroken and probably traumatized to see both her husband and son dead. Right. And then the voice calling out, Hey mother, right. I've come home because I'm sure she knows being in a live ship trader family, that that is her son that in some way, the memories, the memories are from her son. And I, Oh, that's so hard for everyone involved. I feel bad for the wife who and mother who lost her husband and son, even if Udo wasn't that great of a guy Yeah, still, she must've loved him a little bit because she's seems pretty heartbroken or maybe it's just the love for her son. I don't know. Eventually, Paragon was in the creditor's hands because Setter died young. But also eventually, they, uh, the ownership was grudgingly offered to two cousins of the Ludluck family. Two brothers, specifically, Cable and Sedge. They came forward to claim the ship. Competition was fierce, but Cable was the elder by a few minutes. He claimed the prize and vowed he would reclaim the, the family's live ship. He spent months talking to the Paragon and eventually seemed to have a sort of bond with him. 
to others, he said the ship was like a frightened child who responded best to coaxing. Those who held the family's debt on the live ship extended cable credit, muttering somewhat about lending good money after bad, but unable to resist the hope that they had might recoup some of their losses. He hired crew and sent them out, basically, paying outrageous wages to even get them on board ship. He was, Paragon was roundly cr- congratulated, or excuse me, Cable was roundly congratulated on having salvaged the ship, for in the days before he sailed, the Paragon became known as a bashful but courteous ship, given to few words but occasionally smiling, so as to melt anyone's heart. And on a bright spring day, they left Bingtown, and Cable and his crew were never heard from again. And when he was next sighted, he was a wreck of shattered and dangling rigging in tattered canvas. Reports of him reached Bingtown months before he did. He rode low in the water, his decks nearly awash, and no human replied to the hails of other passing ships. Only the figurehead, black-eyed and stone-faced, stared back at those who ventured close enough to see for themselves that no one worked his decks. Back to Bingtown he came, back to the seawall where he had been tied for so many years. The first and only words he was reputed to have been spoken were, Tell my mother I've come home. Whether that was truth or the stuff of legend, Althea could only guess. And so, second crew gone from Paragon. And this is after a few months of maybe seeing him turn around and become a bashful young boy. Yeah, which is really interesting. I know we get later in the series, I don't know if it's this book or the next, but we do hear from Paragon. I think it would be the next. Yeah. Or maybe even the third. But we, I know that there is a, a... chapter at least where paragon talks about what actually happened on the ship and i forget about this one i think this is one of the mysteries that we never learn are you sure he's not the one that was actually abusive or something to people i feel like it could be but i feel like this is one of the the one of the secrets that we don't really get to know we get more details obviously on the next one right because then it passes that's so Sedge is the brother who is younger, takes mm-hmm. over, and that is Kenneth's grandfather. Right. I looked this up. So yes. um, he, he sets out and finally his son goes out with him on the final thing, and that's Lucto. Right. Kenneth's dad. So, and then they're never heard from again. Yeah, and then they're never heard. So, yeah, I, I don't know if we get too many details about Cable specifically. I'd be very interested to hear if there are more, but I thought this was one of the secrets that we don't know anything more about but a lot of mystery surrounding paragon in general right so sedge takes over right and i do think it's interesting that we have this whole talk about how of superstition but how it's kind of true i mean sure the sailors are being superstitious and they're going from sympathetic to fear because this isn't something that they can make better this is so outside of the realm of normal but with that superstition of, oh, it's bad luck to tie up near here, and oh, like it's bad luck to sail on that ship, they're not wrong. No, they, they're not. <laughs> I mean, as much as I hate to say that because I love Paragon and I think he's great, he does he's kind a of troubled person. Or yeah, thing. <laughs> he does have a lot of death surrounding him. Well, we don't know that Cable died and his crew died. They they could have dropped off at another port and he sailed off without them for all we know their bodies are never found no and the uh the logbooks say that there's good good weather and everything like that and there's some cargo in the hold but no life or no 
site of remains on right. the ship. So don't really know. Which is so weird. Yeah. Where'd they go? <laughs> but then Sedge takes over and he makes 17 successful voyages with the Paragon. And to those who asked how he managed it, he replied that he ignored the figurehead and sailed the ship as if it were no more than wood. For those years, the figurehead of the Paragon was in, indeed a mute thing, glaring balefully on any who glanced his way. His powerful arms were crossed on his muscled chest, his jaws clamped as tightly shut as they had been when he was wood. Whatever secret the ship knew about the fates of Cable and his crew, he kept to himself. Elthea's father had told her that the Paragon had been almost accepted in the harbor, that some said that Sedge had broken the string of ill luck that had haunted the ship. Sedge himself bragged of his mastery of the live ship, and fearlessly took his eldest son off to sea with him. Sedge redeemed the note on his house and lands, and made a comfortable living for his wife and children. Some of the ship's former creditors began to mumble that they had acted too hastily in signing the ill-omen ship back to him. So there was a thought in town that, well, luck is broken, 17 successful voyages, Sedge made enough money to even buy back the credits, and basically own the whole ship again for his family and right. set up his family with a lot of money. He was making good money and eventually took his eldest son with him as well. But the Paragon never returned from Sedge's 18th voyage. It was a bad year for storms and some said that Sedge's fate was no different from what many a mariner suffered that year. Heavily iced rigging can overturn any ship, live ship or no. Sedge's widow walked the docks and watched the horizon with empty eyes, but it was a full 20 years and she had remarried and borne more children before the Paragon returned. Now this is the part of the story where Sedge goes off with his son Lucto. Lucto is the one that pushes more for like pirate isles are cool, let's make deals with them to get more money, sets up the whole thing with uh, with Igret on Key Island, right where they were staying, where they made like a small little port on Key Island. Lucto married a girl from the Pirate Isles, and Igret betrayed them. And then for those twenty years, that was Igret's ship. Yeah. And Kennet was born there in Key Island, and was on board, and eventually. Paragon is floating back after he tried to drown himself and goes mad from the serpents talking to him on the bottom of the ocean. Right. And has a wreckage where his eyes were because Kenneth was forced to take a hatchet to them by Igret, I believe. Yes. Because Paragon had seen where Igret had buried his treasure. I think it was. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about other contexts, but I think that was the main reason. So he comes floating back to Bingtown. Once again, full side up. So he's upside down. Folk knew almost at once who he was. There were no volunteers to tow him in. No one was interested in writing him or finding out what had become of his crew. Even to speak of him was deemed ill luck. But eventually he became a hazard, and the harbor master had to send people out to haul him. So they hauled him as far up the beach as they could. And he is tied up there now. So the tides can't bring him back out. And they went aboard and they discovered that he had suffered the harsh fate of the mutilation and that there was a peculiar seven, uh, 
pointed star, livid as a burn scar, marred his chest. And it was all the more terrible that his mouth scowled and cursed as savagely as ever, and that the groping hands reached out, promising to rend whoever came in reach of them. But they found it stripped to its bones. There was no sign of anything that had happened. There was not even logbooks anymore, so he was bereft of his memories as well. Paragon was truly mad. He was the outcast, and he is on the sand forever. And Elthea says, so all of my lifetime, he's been on that sand. The pariah or goner is what they call him. Mm -hmm. He was occasionally floated on exceptionally high tides, but the order, the harbor master had ordered him well anchored to the beach cliffs. So it's not going to break, break away and wash out to sea where he would become a hazard again. And nominally, the pariah was the property of Amos Ludluck now, but Althea doubted she had ever visited the beached wreckage of the live ship. Like any other mad relative, he was kept in obscurity, spoken of in whispers if not spoken of at all. Althea imagined such a fate befalling Vivacia and shuddered. So she realized the boy comes back. She realizes she needs to wrap up her meal here and is thinking on there. I don't know how Vivacia is going to act. I don't know what personality she has. She thinks on the pariah, the paragon, everything that went wrong with that and doesn't want that fate to befall Vivacia. But she can't do much. Right. And sitting in this restaurant and mulling over other people's tragedy isn't going to help her at all. She leaves the tea shop, wanders around Market Street, and she says the more she tried to focus her mind on her problems, the more she could not decide which problem to confront first. She needed a place to sleep, food, a prospect of employment for herself, and her beloved ship was in insensitive hands and she could do nothing to change it. She tried to think of allies, but she couldn't think of anybody, and she cursed herself for not cultivating the company of other traders' sons and daughters. She had no bow she could turn to, no best friend who would shelter her for a few days. On board the Vivacia, she had had her father for companionship and serious talk, and the sailors for company and joking. And she didn't do anything to have friends at home. No. So she she, has no one to turn to. Yeah, she didn't really try to cultivate any relationships, romantic or not. (laughs) And she talks about how, other than the sailors and her father, she also knows a few of the merchants and Curtil. But those aren't really people she can turn to in this sort of situation. You can't really go to a merchant and be like, hey, I'm homeless right now. Can I spend the night somewhere? You know, (laughs) doesn't exactly look great. And then again, she says, nor should could she go home without appearing to crawl. And there is no uh, predicting what Kyle would do. (laughs) So, right. Which she nails on the head for locking her in her room. Yeah, (laughs) she wouldn't put it past him, locking her in her room for a week. But she is very concerned about Vivacia, so eventually she's like, okay, I need to write a note to my mother to talk about Vivacia and have Ronica check on her. She could find little more to say except that she was concerned for the, the ship, that Vivacia seemed unhappy and restless. She asked for nothing for herself, only that her mother would visit the Vivacia herself and encourage the ship to speak plainly to her and reveal the source of her unhappiness. Knowing it would be seen as overdramatic, she nevertheless reminded her mother of the Paragon's sad fate. Althea rereads her missive, frowning at how histrionic it seems, 
and she told herself it was the best she could do and that her mother was the kind of person who at least could, would go down and see for herself. She seals it off and sends the lass on her way to deliver the note. But she looks up and finds herself that she's wandered to the Rainwald Street, where she is thinking on her father once again. It was one of their favorite places to go with all the wonderful and magical things there. Right. And she talks a little bit about her memories of the time she has spent in here, that they would go store to store and check out all the new exciting magical uh, properties that had been brought in, the new items that had been found from up the Rainwild River. And it was exciting and they loved it. There was a wind chime that played a haunting melody whenever wind hit it. Not not random, but... Yes, but an actual melody, which is really cool. (laughs) There were tapestries and arts. There was... The Sofrens marketed pearls in deep shades of orange and amethyst and blue and vessels of cold glass that never warmed and could be used to chill wine or fruit or sweet cream. There was fruit even from the Rainwild River that the oils from the peel would heal things. They would numb serious wounds. So like kind of anesthesia. Or no, that... Well, kind of, because it also, if you eat it, will give you get you high apparently an intoxicant with an effect that lingered for days there's also toy shops there that you could find dolls with liquid eyes and soft warm skin mimicking of a real infant which is scary to me (laughs) and clockwork toys so finely geared that they would run for hours pillows stuffed with herbs that assured wonderful dreams marvelously carved smooth stone that glowed with a cool inner light to keep nightmares at bay and the prices were very, very dear and outrageous in Bingtown, but way out of price for anything out of port as well. But price was not the reason why Efren Vestrit refused to buy such toys, even for the outrageously spoiled granddaughter Malta. When Althea had pressed him about it, he had only shaken his head. You cannot touch magic and not carry away some of its taint upon you, he had told her darkly. Our forebears judged the price too high and left the Rainwilds to settle Bingtown, and we ourselves do not traffic in Rainwild goods. When she had pressed him as to what he meant, he had shaken his head and told her that they would discuss it when she was older. But even his misgivings had not stopped him from buying the perfumed gems that his wife had so longed for when she was older. No matter what, that's not coming anymore. Right. So I do want to first say that the price for these items aren't just high in standard of what else is being sold in Bingtown. It's specifically mentioned that they're high, they're higher sold for higher prices outside of Bingtown. So that's insane. And that even for Bingtown trader families, it's kind of pricey, you don't just like buy them all the time. Right. And I think that's really interesting to think about that, that, that is what Kyle wants that this is what Efren turned down. It's a lot of wealth. It is. It truly is. I mean, there's these wonderful magical things that are so out of this world and they're not going to sell any of it. But he has a reason. He says that it's because you can't, you know, use magic without it taking something from you still indulges Ronica with her perfume gems. Though. Right. Which is, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> 
I don't know. It's really interesting to me because I wonder if there's more to the blood plague than we know. Maybe, but I don't think they ever go into it. And none of the other traders seem to stop, you know? Right. But that's why I'm wondering if there was something more like possibly I don't were they the know. first family to get it. And so he feels like it's more of his fault that was, did he, he wasn't the captain. I don't think was he, well, his kids are the ones that died. Yeah, so. I know. But was his father still alive? Oh yeah. I suppose his father would still be alive. Cause Althea I don't remember. I do not remember. Mm-hmm. I, I think we, I think we sussed this out like, Three, four, five chapters ago, but I don't remember a month ago. <laughs> well, either way, like we know he how feels old like his fa- was. he feels yeah. his family is responsible, right? That's the kind of thing. Like we don't yes. do this anymore, so that's the whole point. Well, right, but I guess that's just what I'm saying. Is like, yeah, it's his rule, though. So I guess maybe they still were. I don't know. I don't know. Althea would have been on the ship. By the time her father or when her grandfather died, it's only a few years later that she's on the ship. So it ha- it either happened those four years between when her grandfather died and her father was first starting to captain the ship or it happened before then. And he just was able to enact it whenever it was his turn. Unclear. Doesn't super matter. But we do have this nonsense of like magic comes with a price and it's too high and Efren isn't willing to pay it. I don't know. Before she leaves Rainwild Street though, she has an apprehensive glance towards Amber's shop. Realizes that Amber is not staring at her, so is breathing a sigh of relief, but does notice that people are going in and out of her shop, so she is having a successful business here but doesn't notice any traitor family insignia. So is wondering what Rainwild's traitor family she is associated with, because why else would she be here? Right. How else should, could she make enough money to be where she is? Yeah. And then she decides that it's time to really figure out how much she has left there. She checks the contents of her pockets And she has, let's see, she could have a room and a meal tonight, or she could eat frugally for several days on what uh, what her pockets held. She thought again of simply going home, but could not bring herself to do it, at least not while Kyle might be there. Later, after he had sailed, if she had not found work and a place to stay by then, then she might be driven to go home and retrieve at least her clothes and personal jewelry. But not while Kyle was there. Absolutely not. She dumped the coins and notes into her purse and cinched it tight, wishing she could call back the money she had spent so carelessly on drink the night before. She couldn't, so best to be careful with what remained. And she walks off. And she walks off thinking that there's only one place she can go because she needs a place to stay for tonight. But she knows she can't spend money at an inn. And now Robin Hobb does the very, as a rereader, it's so clumsy to me 
But as like first time going through, it's like, haha, that's funny and like a little clever because she's like, oh, this person isn't reliable and I haven't seen him for a long time. And My father forbid me from going near him. Yes. <laughs> it had been months since she had last spoken to him. But when she was a child, before she began sailing with her father, she had spent many summer afternoons in his company. Although the other children from town had found him both alarming and disgusting, Althea had soon lost her fear of him. She had felt sorry for him, truth to be told. He was frightening, true, but the most frightening part about him was what others had done to him. When she had grasped that, a tentative friendship had followed. As the evening sun dimmed into a long summer's evening, Althea left Bingtown proper behind her and began to pick her way down to the rock-strewn beach to where the beached paragon reposed on the sand. It's just, so, on a reread, it's still kind of funny that it's like, oh, I Robin Hobb's definitely trying to mislead you to end with, like, she's going to Paragon. Right. And it's like, oh, that's where Brashen is, too. Wow, they're going to meet. But on a reread through this, it's like she just had six pages detailing Paragon's full history plus three names. And then the last paragraph is like, she spent many a year in his company and her father forbid her to go there. It's like so vague on who it is. It's just funny to me. Yeah, it's definitely um, a chipper ending. And it's interesting that the people that get along with Paragon are Brash and Althea because they both see each other as so different. Yeah. They're hashtag not like other people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they both, when they need some place to go, count on Paragon to let them stay. Yeah. And he will. I mean, so I guess they're not wrong. Most companies going to have for years. (laughs) Well, that's not true. (laughs) But it is something that Althea is now struggling with. It's the reality and the gravity of her situation that she wasn't expecting to have nothing to her name whenever she was spending the full night drinking away her money. Right. And now she has to regroup, regroup and regather and figure out the best plan of action moving forward. And right now, that's, I'll eat as long as I can, and then hopefully Kyle leaves, then I can go back and get jewelry and sell that off to (laughs) find work. Right. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you have any thoughts on the Ludlucks or Paragon or anything like that, please let us know. You can reach us at isfitshappy at gmail.com where you can you know email us or you can comment or DM us on any of the main social medias, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're available at all of those. So we're at isfitshappy for all three of those. Yeah, we look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. 